Welcome, Truth Seekers, to the Truth Seekers Podcast, where we always seek for truth in every single way possible out there. And this podcast, this podcast, this episode is the second part of the Revelation series. In this episode, we go through chapter 12, just trying to figure out what it means and the meaning behind it. And as before, I have the two guests on, Zach Yates and Ronnie Gill, my dad. And let's get going. All right, this is the second part of the Revelations podcast episode, and let's see if we can figure out what the Mark of the Beast is, or just figure things out. I don't know if we'll get quite to the Mark of the Beast today, but hopefully we'll get you through chapter 12. Hopefully past verse 1 at least. (laughs) Now you're being hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> Pass verse one. Okay, let's read first one. Verse one. Hold on. Before we read first one, it's okay. important for us to think about and just rehearse a few of the things that we talked about. Uh, chapter 11, we were seeing the two witnesses that it told us are basically like two churches, two olive trees, uh, the Word of God, the Bible, and the Book of Mormon that came out of those two groups. Uh, and that basically they were laying in the street as if dead. Uh, you might say, in a certain way, rejected of the people. And when they were laying in the street as if dead, the people were actually rejoicing. There was a happiness about that. Sometimes when we think about the Dark Ages and we think about everything that happened, of course, uh, we'll get a little bit more into this in, in chapter 12, but we think not everyone could have been against it. But the reality of it is the picture that's given in chapter 11 is that people started throwing a party because these two things were lying as if dead. And that's pretty important for us to think about. Another interesting thing, uh, as we go through the book of Revelations, uh, we've actually read several passages and we'll read several passages where we find the word church. The word church actually never appears in Revelations in the Greek. Doesn't so exist. It just never is in the Greek. It's never in the Greek. It's only translated into English. <clears throat> it's translated, and part of that is one of the difficulties in translation, kind of like we were talking about in the first one. Um, when you have a word in another language and you're translating it to your language, oftentimes you're going to translate it to the closest match. So the Greek word that we find as church in Revelations is actually assembly of citizens. That's the word. Which, you know, follows through, gives a little bit of a different, um, maybe, understanding. But, I mean, you still get the gist of it as church. Because, obviously, this citizenship is based on our belief in Jesus Christ and all that goes with that. But it's interesting as that's brought in because this message, as we found in John chapter 1, this message is actually for the Jewish assembly of citizens. And that's interesting because, you know, we read Revelations from our perspective as Gentiles, as modern day people in the church, but this was actually written for a group of people. John starts out in that first chapter uh, with the order from God being told, write the things which you've seen, write the things which are, and write the things that will be hereafter. 
And it's important not to lose sight of that because he's actually given kind of a process of events as they're going to happen. The people who think that almost all of Revelations is in the future, they're not really, in my opinion, taking into account that phrase when God tells him uh, how to look at these things. You know, both what he's seen, <coughs> the things that are, are and the things that will be uh, in the future. And also when you come down, uh, he tells him in chapter 1 uh, to write these things, or what it says in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And so again, you know, if we were going to retranslate all these to fit a futuristic point of view, we would have to fix some of this language because this language doesn't fit that John was writing something that wasn't going to take place for 2,000 years. You could never even translate the revelations in any accord at all because <clears throat> it doesn't match. It won't match anything if you don't take that verse into account. Yes. The other interesting thing is the word revelation itself. Uh, in revelation, uh, the, the word revelation when we look at it from the perspective of a Jewish church, the word revelation means to lay bare, to make naked, to disclose the truth, or to expose. Uh, the actual word in Hebrew is hit gal, hit gal. Now, the latter part of that uh, is actually galut, or I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but hit galut. Uh, that latter part, galut, which me, uh, actually means that which is in exile. And so literally what you have here in a sense is we're exposing things we didn't know. We're exposing things that were removed. We're, we're laying bare. And I think that's an important way to look at it. You know, as we mentioned in, in the first podcast, prophecy, when it's done with this symbolic imagery can read, uh, can, can place some of the spirit back in the text of the whole Bible. And I think that's important to think about. It's really interesting as well that if you're thinking about prophecy, you can also think about parables. And Jesus has always spoken parables. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why he spoke in parables. And Jesus actually gives that reason in one part of the Bible. So it's the same with prophecy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now we can probably read verses 1 through 6. Do your job. The reason you're here. <laughs> Chapter 12 of Revelations. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And she being with child cried travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was already to be delivered, for to, del to devour her child as soon as it was born. And as she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to heaven, to God, and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, 
that she should feed her a thousand she should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days so is this woman um the israel because it has the 12 stars around her head or is it in the sense of israel um wrestling with god which is the definition of israel wrestling with god because it would be a different context and different definition and different part of history if you were looking at it in the different part to view and does the dream of uh, joseph come into play at all with the sun the moon the stars mm -hmm. uh, i would say yes and yes and also no uh, from the sense of this when we look at old testament especially uh, and, and this is going to be one of those key things for understanding this passage. We always have the image of God and his bride. And that's important to think about. And so when we think about Israel, Israel is oftentimes the Old Testament presented as a woman. But the church in the New Testament is also presented as a woman. And so because we're in the epoch of time, when this, this passage is taking place after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's probably not specifically speaking of the house of Israel. But in as much as people from the house of Israel who lived in Jerusalem became members of the church, Paul, Peter, John, etc., etc., you have the house of Israel now blending in with the New Testament church. Now, the New Testament church really is a split thing, and sometimes we fail to see this as we're looking at it. We have the Jews in Jerusalem, which when they began to, to come into the church, they brought in a lot of their habits. Old habits die hard. That's just the reality of it. And so in the New Testament, you have these passages like uh, in Acts where all the disciples are together at the table and Peter doesn't want to sit with the Gentiles or with the uncircumcised. You have another passage where there's some argument, should the Gentiles be circumcised or not? And so you have these arguments taking place because you have one side of the church in Jerusalem or those who are around there that are steeped in tradition, even though they're members of the church. Outside of that, you've got the work Paul's doing in the Gentile nations. And of course, uh, the question is brought to the apostles in one of the early conferences, what should we order the Gentiles? And the letter they write back is basically, don't eat anything strangling its blood and don't eat anything offered idols. That's it. <laughs> and so those are the Ten Commandments that they sent out to the Gentiles, so to speak. And so you have these extreme differences. And of course, as these communities came closer and closer together, you ended up with a blend of it in the middle. This is the woman. <clears throat> now, do you also have, uh, I, I think of Hebrews as one of them. Hebrews was one of those writings that really tried to help bridge that gap between it the did. two extremes, right? It absolutely did. In the comparison. <coughs> Uh, you also had another book, one of the Apocrypha, the book of uh, Barnabas. I think it's Barnabas. Barnabas, I think, is what it is. Uh, that was written that never made it into the canon of uh, the King James, but is another work that tried to help bridge that gap. Is there any, uh, so for your point of view, is actually a little more specific because in some ways I look at it as... Moses' law mm -hmm. and the law of Moses and the authority it had. 
Christ was born, but also he was very short in the time period. If you're looking at it from an epoch standpoint, he was only there 30 years. That's right. 35 years. So, I mean, literally it would be like at birth and then brought up to heaven Mm -hmm. with the authority after that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's more of a uh, dumbed down version of what you just said, right? Right. And so what we have in this, and, and this is one of the reasons it's good to talk about this and think about it. Because in this passage, aside from the presentation of the woman, which we should talk about the different characters, the the different things that we're seeing in this image, she's giving birth to a man-child that will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, for a lot of people, when they read this, it's pretty common uh, for people to consider that that child being born is Jesus Christ. A lot of people actually think that that's what it is. So, if the woman whether she's ancient Israel or whether the woman's the church, we know that when Christ comes the second time, there is going to be a wedding feast. Is he marrying his mother? <laughs> that wouldn't make no sense. Okay, and, and see, that's why sometimes these are good things to think about in this terms because it can help us bring some sense into it. And so this woman, whatever she represents, which in my opinion is probably all of the true believers, Old Testament and New Testament alike, um, out of this effort is coming this man-child that will rule uh, the nations with a rod of iron. And what's important about that is when we come into um, Revelations chapter 5, verse 10... We have this, it says, And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. This was, a, this was speaking about ministry. And, of course, if we think about a rod of iron, you know, a lot of people think of a rod of iron more as a, a rod of iron, so to speak. But we have the Book of Mormon, and in uh, 1 Nephi chapter 4, 39, it gives us this. And, it said, and I said unto him that it was the Word of God. So you have these people mm. who are ruling with the Word of God. It's interesting that also in chapter 18 or 19, it says that, when Jesus comes, he's going to rule with a rod of iron as well. So that means he's going to be ruling with the, the word of God. The word of God. Mm-hmm. And and if you want to get really literal about it, Jesus says, "I am the word." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And so that's something for us to think about. But also when we get into, and part of this we're going to get into a little bit more as we go down in this passage because there's some events going to happen in this that uh, are very uh, critical to what we're seeing in the church. But one of the important things is in the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon, chapter 1, verse 14, we have this verse. But wickedness did prevail upon the face of the whole land insomuch that the Lord did take away his beloved disciples. And the work of miracles and of the healing did cease because of the iniquity of the people. So, what happens to this child when it's born? It's whisked off to heaven. We have the same thing happening there in the old world, Jerusalem and all that area. First off, we've got the Romans coming in right around 70 uh, to 73 A.D., totally annihilating Jerusalem, scattering the church. But most importantly, what we had in Jerusalem was kind of the headquarters of the church. That headquarters is destroyed. So now where is the center of power? The center of power becomes destroyed in a sense. 
And now you have a scattering of ministry in all these different places that are starting to, in a certain way, do their own thing. You have changes happening right around second, third century in the Old World, same as in the Book of Mormon. You have things beginning to change. All of a sudden you see historically the word apostle begins to vanish and the word bishop begins to replace it. Now, as we look in uh, the New Testament, we find that bishops weren't necessarily called. They were sometimes appointed, although they might be called. And that's an important change because we know apostles are always called. And so now you have this change in the very foundation of the church, and this plays into uh, our passage here. But it'd be good to think about also this woman and, and what she has She's dressed in the sun, and to me the sun itself is an important symbolism in this. Uh, in Malachi, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, we have, But unto you that fear my name shall the sun, and it's literally spelled in Malachi, S-U-N, shall the sun of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and he shall go forth and grow up uh, as calves of the stall. And it's literally speaking of Jesus Christ. And so the Son is a representation of Jesus Christ, the Son, uh, the truth, absolute truth, all of these, the Word of God. It's all of this that is the Son. This is what gives life. This is what gives warmth. This is what gives growth. You name it. I mean, literally taking the literal uh, image of the Son, the Son, its uh, rays that come off of it, is what gives us life and warmth. Mm -hmm. Without it, everything's dead. We don't have anything. No. So that pretty much means, and is what I'm quoting you from before is it's religion is dead when she gets attacked. But we can talk about that later because we're not at that point yet. Mm -hmm. Now you flip that, comparing the sun and what I would call the opposite of it, the moon. She's got the moon under her feet. The moon is literally just a rock. It literally, in and of itself, has no life on it. There's no, not even cactuses that grow in the moon, as far as we know. So far, there's been no living thing found on it. <clears throat> and I think that's worthy to think about. All the light that the moon puts off <coughs> is just purely a reflection. Mm -hmm. Nothing more. And so even the good the moon does, it does predominantly because the sun exists. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the moon itself is disposable. Because the moon does have a part to it that's very vital to uh, the function of the planet Earth. Uh, the moon kind of gives the Earth, so to speak, one of its heartbeats, which is the tides coming in and out. And it's those tides that oftentimes that are pumping water deep within the earth and helping to purify the water that we use, the water that we drink. All of these things are interconnected in the way God created it. So the moon is still a very vital piece, but what we have is this solid thing under her feet that of itself does not give life. And that's important to think about. And then of course we have her crown uh, which a crown to me is an important thing to think about. Typically speaking, when you think historically, crowns were placed on kings' heads by someone else of authority. Uh, 
usually the only time you had a king putting his own crown on uh, was when he was usurping, dethroning, murdering off, uh, something like that. Uh, when you had a legitimate transfer of power, even till today, presidents are elected, there is a, a ceremony for the transfer of power. It's not something that they do of their own. And so the crown, which, you know, a lot of times we, we can argue, is this the 12 uh, patriarchs? Is this the 12 apostles? Because there's 12 stars up there. But in a very simple way, it is the authority to function as a, a, a figurehead of authority. You know, a king receives the crown, now he can function. Before the crown, he doesn't really have that power yet. Right, even nowadays, even powers like the president and stuff, they have changed because you only respect the authority and not the person. And that's a problem in our day and age, but it's, it shows that authority is what really rules in all this. Mm -hmm. It's the place you're held in. Mm -hmm. It's the power you give to the position. Right. Because even kings wouldn't have power if no one listened to them. Exactly. So there is something to be said about that. But I don't know what else you could, you could say. Mm -hmm. Through generations, you see that you can have the power and some people might say that's really foolish going through the ceremonies and stuff like that and then swearing and putting crowns on but there is something to that there's right. definitely something to it it's like when our with our putting our presidents in today it's changing power from one person to the other mm -hmm. exactly and of course when we look at the old testament we know that god came to abraham and made a pact a covenant with him and that was the beginning of that power because it was God himself who came to Abraham and told him take these certain animals uh, cut these animals in half and I'm gonna come and make a pact with you and this cloud of fire came down and passed through between the animals and then came back through the animals the typically when it was gonna be a contract between two people each person would walk through basically saying uh, in, in a symbolic way if I don't uh, uphold my own part of the pact, may I be cut asunder and left to bleed to death. That's the idea here. Well, God, who's he going to swear by? And this is what it tells us in Hebrews. God could swear by nothing higher than himself. So he walks through and then he walks back through. Abraham actually doesn't walk through. And this is because God is giving a promise to Abraham that through his lineage, all the people of the earth will be blessed. And this is the beginning of this coronation, so to speak. From there you have, uh, throughout the different generations, God comes to Isaac, he comes to Jacob, and he comes to each one uh, as it's going along. And you have the essential forming of this crown from generation to generation being passed on by God himself. <clears throat> Even when they got into the period of the temple and the high priest, uh, we take Aaron, who was uh, called into the high priesthood. God came to Moses and told him Aaron would be called. And when he called him, they were supposed to verify the calling through the Urim and Thummim. And so you had this checks and balance so that the people would know. This wasn't just Moses' idea. <coughs> this was something that God himself was doing. And now today, when we have the calling of apostles or ministry in general, you have the same thing kind of still happening. 
We need to arm them though. <laughs> It'll make things so much easier. But we don't want them too easy. If you had the Urum and Thummum, you wouldn't really have the sun either. Alright, well we could probably read down through 7 through 12. Do you have a quick definition for the dragon and the third of the host of heaven? Um, the yeah. dragon in and of itself is defined in this passage, I believe in the next verse. It tells us that the dragon is the devil and Satan himself. Mm -hmm. And of course, when we talk about a third of heaven... Uh, heaven is a pretty broad term and we like to put it into terms of a physical place but it's really something a little bit more broad than that because God's throne is in heaven and it's probably not some place we're ever going to be able to get into one of Elon Musk's SpaceX rockets and travel there or build a tower right so <laughs> it's there's there's something a little bit distinct here than our human understanding of a place uh, but what we have in heaven of course is the the angels of heaven and we know that when the devil is kicked out which we're going to see in this text out of heaven by way of Jesus Christ's death and most importantly is resurrection the devil's expulsed from heaven and the angels that support him which is a third of heaven <clears throat> all right you want to read the next how far uh probably seven through twelve all right sounds good and there was a war in heaven michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not neither was their place found any more in heaven and the great dragon was cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation, and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. And for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Yes, I really like those last words. He knows that he has a short time. That's pretty hopeful. <clears throat> so it tells you that the mm -hmm. dragon is Satan. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that there's people underneath the sea. It says right there, mm -hmm. those who are in the sea. So Atlantis, it does exist. It does exist. Yeah. Let's I, go find I, I it. I had to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to have to go down that rabbit hole at one point. <laughs> One of, the, one of the interesting things that we look at when we're looking at Old Testament and New Testament, when people died in the Old Testament, they, they couldn't really... All they had, as far as heaven is concerned, is a hope. Because it wasn't actually until Jesus Christ died and was resurrected that that hope came to fruition. We have David's own words in the book of Psalms, uh, Psalms 16.10, where he says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to seek corruption. 
And so there's two pieces in this, which really he's speaking of himself, but he's also speaking about Christ himself. Christ would not be left there. He would uh, break the bands of death and come out. And that's kind of what it's giving in this passage, is talking about this war happening in heaven, but there's really no winner until Christ dies and is resurrected because it's through the power of his death and resurrection that the devil is finally beat. <clears throat> He's cast out of heaven uh, and now we see this change in the world because while the devil could spend part of his time on earth, he could spend part of his time wherever heaven was. Now he's expulsed from heaven all of his times on earth and he's vicious man interesting so heaven's more of like uh so like there's no hell but there is a place called heaven because if he's thrown to earth that means that he, there's no other place for him to go except earth there's heaven and earth and he's thrown to earth instead of hell well, the terms heaven and hell probably are really misunderstood by us in general. Um, when we think of the term hell, uh, I believe the, that the book of Revelations probably gives us some of the best definitions of it as we you know, read the whole book and bring it into the full perspective. But hell, in a very simple sense, is the absence of God. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> So it's kind of you can be in a mindset in life even where you are in hell. You you, could you be are without God. The you, absence. But now what's the flip side? That you are with God. Which right. Is heaven. heaven. Yeah. That that is probably the simplest ways in which to term uh, translate or interpret heaven and hell. A complete presence with God, a complete absence of God. That's so you can be in uh, in heaven on earth. To a degree. Uh, the difference, obviously, while we are still alive, before we've died and been resurrected, we have this mortal life which is changing. And so I may be living, so to speak, in hell today because of all of my choices, but I can repent and change. The same rate, I can be baptized, I can join the church, and I can do all these wonderful things, but I can then throw it all aside and decide to serve the devil. Once you die, change is no longer, as far as the scripture says, going to happen. What you are when you die, the scripture tells us, he who is happy is happy still. He who is miserable is miserable still. And so it's this short period of time of, of what we call life that we have the option, the free will agency, to choose which of those two what is going to be our final destination. So you want to die off-roading then, because then you're happy and you die happy. <laughs> well, it depends on the death. If you're in the middle of that nice, fun adventure and then die, that's fine. But if you get stuck, if you're miserable oh, out there, you yeah. get underneath, Flat and you tire, crush your, your, your femur, and you're you slowly bleeding out, there. you're probably not over here going, yeah! <laughs> probably not I find it interesting um, verse 7 and 8 mm -hmm. makes me think of the dialogue in Job mm -hmm. mostly because it says that, that neither was there found any place more in heaven which would imply that there was a time that he was in heaven which makes me go maybe that was the purpose of the dialogue in Job mm -hmm. 
It's actually uh, very much so. Um, you have that dialogue because uh, in the Old Testament, the devil would come before God, be, you know, because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden in partaking of the prohibited fruit. We had death come upon all mankind. And so everyone who was born was born under the sin of Adam and Eve. And so until Christ died on the cross, that that sin of Adam couldn't be uh, accounted for. And so in the Old Testament, it really didn't matter if you were the most saintly person in the world. You were still a criminal because you held the sin of Adam over you, overshadowing you. And you couldn't get out from under it. And so essentially, you could have been, you know, from your childhood up to the day you died, basically a saint, and it wouldn't matter. The devil could still accuse you because of the sin of Adam. And of course, obviously, if you were sinning, it didn't matter if you were repenting. The devil could still accuse you, and that's what it talks about in the scripture. The devil was the accuser of the brethren. That was what his purpose was. He would go before the throne. He would mock the believers you know, as humans, we're pretty, we're pretty fragile. We're pretty, you know, it, it's hard for us to just stay on the, the straight and narrow, so to speak. And so he would mock the believers because, you know, one day we would be loving our neighbors to death and the next day we'd be hating them and shooting them and killing them, mm. so to speak. And so this whole uh, change that is so drastic so often in us as humankind gave the devil plenty of ammunition to mock us. But at this moment, he's no longer allowed in heaven. There's a complete change. He is removed out, and as it says, there's no longer a place found for him. And so what we saw happen in the book of Job cannot happen again. In that sense. Now if we're talking about that time period before when you have the sin of Adam, was that the purpose for outer darkness and for... Oh, what was the other place? It wasn't heaven. It was the intermediate place. Mm -hmm. You have paradise. Paradise. You have paradise. Do you think that, you think that mm -hmm. comes into play? And do you think it is or is not still into play today because of the death of Christ? Um, yes and no. Again, uh, what you had was something that was called the bosom of Abraham in one passage. Essentially, we can almost imagine this like a clay jar, so to speak, split in half. Mm -hmm. Because we have the parable in the New Testament of the rich man uh, with Lazarus outside, and he wouldn't feed Lazarus. Lazarus died. The rich man died. They both find themselves in the bosom of Abraham. This is prior to Christ's death still, so we're still seeing an image of an Old Testament. <clears throat> the rich man's over here, and he is just in torment. And all he wants is a drop of water on his tongue. And so he sees Abraham and he sees Lazarus and he says, can't you just send Lazarus over here to just wet the tip of his finger and touch my tongue? And Abraham's like, no, there's a chasm between us. We can't go there. You guys can't come here. And so that's an essential passage for us always to remember. Wherever you are, you can't cross the divide. It's like in the dream of Lehi where there's a huge river in between the huge building and the tree of life correct mm -hmm. but when christ dies and and the most important of that is his resurrection it says that the bands of death were broken 
And so now one half of this, in, my, in, in the way I see things, envision them scripturally, this side over here were, was paradise. These were the people who had lived according to the commandments of God to the best of their ability. They were destined for heaven, but they couldn't get there because of the sin of Adam. Soon as Christ was resurrected, he became uh, their lawyer before God, so to speak. And he was able to uh, break those bands of death that kept them isolated from God, and they were able to go to heaven. And so that's why in the book of Revelations, we find the spirits of those under uh, the altar of God. They're in heaven. So really, this actually brings to mind uh, something that I believe not just the Mormon church does, but they do the baptism of the dead, which would essentially have an understanding of that I can atone for the sins of those who died before, which is rather ridiculous in my mind because the only person who could do that would be Christ. He's the only one. He's the only one that can atone for those types of things. But those people had to make those decisions before for grace to be passable. Otherwise, both chasms would have been atoned for. The rich man would have been and went to heaven as well, which we know this is probably not the case. Which is, again, why I said yes and no to your, your, your first question, because in my opinion, that other side was not open. And the reason why I say that is, as we advance towards the last chapters Second in uh, Revelations, we have the white throne judgment. Mm -hmm. And right before the white throne judgment, we have this whole judgment scene happening. And it says the wicked, they would not be resurrected until the end. And so you have a, a resurrection of the righteous who now are reigning for a thousand years, uh, the millennial reign with Jesus Christ, but the rest of the wicked were not yet resurrected. Mm -hmm. And so to me, there's still this divide, and these group are still waiting for their ultimate judgment. <clears throat> but, you know, that's just the way I read it because of the text. It doesn't mean I'm right. Right. <laughs> so what it means when he takes the third part of the stars with him or heavenly host, it would be him taking angels and stuff with him when he is taken out of heaven. At that time, the only authorities that would have been in heaven, of course, is the Godhead and the angels. which To which we do not know much about, but we do know they have choice of some kind mm -hmm. to an extent. <clears throat> which is why a third of them were cast out. Uh, they made a choice, and it was the wrong one. Mm-hmm. Anything else to cover on those verses? We can read on to thirteen or seven to seventeen if you unless you guys got something else to mention. What about the woman going into the wilderness? Is that where we're at right we're now? We're coming on we're coming into that right now. You ready? Go for it. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man child, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness unto her place, where she is nourished. For a time and times and a half a time from the face of the serpent and the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood and the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth and the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnants of her seed which kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
And so when I'm looking at this, I'm seeing this woman. <clears throat> she has the child. The child is whisked off up to heaven at some point. And of course, thinking back to what uh, uh, Mormon said, wickedness did prevail. The disciples of the Lord were taken to heaven. No more miracles. You see this transition. And we head out to the desert. And basically, depending on where you're going in this world, the desert is a pretty dead place. Um, when I think about the desert and I think about how dead it is, of course, I always think of Miracle Max. <laughs> His statement, you know, when he says, when they come in, uh, it only happens your friend is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between all dead and mostly dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. <laughs> and I think about the desert in that terms because while it's true that the desert is predominantly dead, uh, there were some bright moments in that period of time throughout the Dark Ages. You had coming up to our current period, you had through that time several times historically where men would rise up, Martin Luther, John Calvin, others, bright stars who attempted to bring back in the spirit of the church. Uh, they didn't have a whole lot of success, but they, they, made, they made really valiant attempts. And that's why I say it's not completely dead. What they did in many ways, those uh, the reformers, was some really important things because it made it possible for God to restore his church at one point. If those guys had never done anything, if they didn't exist, it would have been very difficult for God to have restored the church. I mean, God can still do whatever he wants, but it would have been a little bit more difficult. And so... We have the progress, essentially, when we think about the period of time after Christ's uh, resurrection, the Romans come into power, they begin rising up, they begin persecuting the church. Uh, we have this whole battle between Herod the Great and Caesar. We have Herod literally wiping out his family in a great way because he's afraid someone in his family is going to take over. We have this battle that happens. He finally dies. Uh, Jerusalem, the whole area around the Galilee is split, split up into, I think what they call the triumphant or something like that, split up into various pieces, various leaders, battle after battle, who gets to have it. Finally, the Romans get sick and tired of it and set Titus over, surround Jerusalem, wipe out the Jews and the Christians, for the most part, some escape because some took to heart what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. He says, when you see the enemy come to surround Jerusalem, get out. He says, he was on the roof, get down, don't go inside and get your luggage, basically. And so we know historically that there were a lot of believers. Some went to Petra, some went to other areas. They fled Jerusalem. Those that didn't flee, of course, we have the testimony of Josephus, in the siege of Jerusalem, and that was a horrific testimony. Uh, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But essentially, this is what you have, this persecution of the church coming on. And so, it's kind of what it's showing in this text. You have the beautiful church, the beautiful uh, woman that represents all believers. Now, her she, she's uh, divesting of the Son, Jesus Christ and the truth, and beginning to put on the moon, the dead rock. Uh, as we mentioned in the translation uh, and the difficulties in translation, and even as we mentioned in the last one about malevolent or bad faith players, we have in this text a very important passage. 
in verse 14. <clears throat> it says that the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into a place where she is nourished. And that's an important word, that word nourishment. That's to feed. She's out in the desert. There's not much life. Okay, we, we continue and it says, for a time, time and half a time, from the face of the serpent. A lot of people don't understand the from in that. That from actually is a whole lot different than we like to think because it actually literally means by or out of the face of. She is nourished by the serpent. And that's when we go back to the translation problem and the malevolence. Because all of a sudden you have the woman who was nourished by Jesus Christ and the truth being nourished by a malevolent uh, being. And so right away, second, third century, you have things changing in the church. Now all of a sudden you have people, instead of praying to, to the Father in Jesus' name, they begin to pray to saints. They begin to pray to Mary. Uh, you no longer have adults choosing to be baptized. Uh, now you have the resurgent of the idea that the sin of Adam still exists. Essentially, to say that the sin of Adam still exists is to negate Christ's resurrection. But they begin to believe that the sin of Adam still exists and therefore we needed to baptize children. And so you have one after another these new ideas coming in and the church at large as an entity is being fed these new ideas, these new philosophies. You no longer have the father and the son as is depicted in the book of Daniel where you have the ancient of days and one like the son of man coming together and dialoguing. You now have uh, under Constantine coming in blending uh, the Roman government with the church government, Constantine comes in and begins actually usurping power as king in the church. He calls all the bishops together and says, solve the problem of the Godhead. And so they begin debating the Godhead on the floor, and you have the idea of what, what most churches believe today, the Trinity, and you have the idea of the Arians, which was that God, the Father, was from the beginning and that he created, <coughs> the first of his creation was Jesus Christ. And so we had these different philosophies, and I'm not saying that either one of those was necessarily absolutely fully right, but you already had this deterioration that's happening. You have this battle taking place. Constantine, who technically is not even a member of the church, is now usurping power uh, and you have this whole thing being twisted. When they decided at the Nicene Council that the Trinity was going to be the stance for the church, then Constantine sent out and began to uh, kill off everyone who believed counter to that. And so it's one of the first times in the New Testament where the church is using the state to kill off those who don't follow the rule of law. And this is what we're seeing in this. She's going out to the desert, a place of little life, little spirit. I mean, there's still specks of it out there, but she's being nourished from the face of the serpent, which, what does the devil offer us? Lies, mm -hmm. half-truths, twisted truths, however you want to look at it. But there's a maliciousness. There's a bad faithness to that. And so the, the assembly of citizens 
has now drifted away from what it once was. And the focus becomes a legalistic approach. What do you think the flood is, though? The flood of the serpent sent after the woman that the earth swallowed up. Well, there's a lot of ways to look at that flood. Water, in general, when we're talking prophetically, oftentimes speaks of groups of people. Uh, the beast that we're going to be looking at in the next chapter comes out of the water. And so to speak, it's coming out of the nations of the world. And so the flood that's being sent out after the woman is literally peoples, nations, and tribes. And so you have this sense where there's a, a somewhat of a unity among the people against the small group of people. Interesting. And even in the verse 17, it says that the dragon was wroth with the woman <clears throat> and all the remnants of it that actually kept the commandments and kept what Jesus Christ brought to earth. Which brings back to what you said about the Constantine and the Byzantine Empire trying to kill all the Christians that were keeping the commandments and what Jesus had brought. Which is kind of weird because Constantine, when he basically married the church and state, he made the church prosper. And there was a moment in there in Rome's history where basically you had to be a believer and a member of the church even to get into the government. And so you have this whole twist of things where prior to Constantine, the Romans were persecuting the churches based on idolatry, Zeus and all the other uh, plethora of gods out there, the pantheon. Uh, but when Constantine comes in, he accepts, so to speak, Christianity, although he never really did what was required by Jesus Christ, but he accepts it, accepts it becomes uh, an advocate for the church, and begins persecuting everyone who doesn't follow the line according to the general accepted beliefs of the bishops. Entire change of history. Uh, something that you know you would have never expected if Christ was at the head of the church and not Constantine. Yeah, it's the first time that even a church and a state even joined together. And of course, a lot of this will begin to play out even more when we get into chapter 13, because in chapter 13, we begin to see the flip side of this, because in chapter 12, what we're really seeing is what happened to the church and it going out to the desert, it going out to this spiritually depleted area where there's very little spirit. And we see this historically from basically the third, fourth century, all the way up into our uh, period of time. You just have these flashes of uh, you know bright spots in history as far as uh, Christianity is concerned. Uh, but it isn't until a more modern time that you actually start really seeing the gospel blow up on the earth, uh, being translated into every language. I mean, during this period of time, uh, for a long time, it was actually illegal even to own a scrap of the Bible. You know, one little text that you kept in your house could get you killed. And so you had this period of time of just extreme persecution, even by the church itself. What's really interesting is the Byzantine Empire actually um, was alive for around 1,260 years, which fits the passage. 
like we mentioned in the previous one, I like all the numbers in here, and I think that all these numbers are critically important uh, as a person gets deeper into prophecy to understand what they all mean. But in a very generic sense, I love them because it tells us that all time is metered by God for our purpose. And that when we're looking at these things, while there is a beginning and some of these things are very sad and were very horrific, but there's also an end. That's the hope. Just like David said, God will not leave my soul in hell. And, you know, in a very simple sense, you know, here in this earth through the dark ages, there was some hell on earth. There really was. And God isn't going to leave my soul in hell. And that's a wonderful thing to think about, too, because each individual through their life may experience some glimpses of hell in their own life. <clears throat> through the journey, no matter where you're at, whether that be a family member passing, a nation under attack, those things happen. Could be suicide in the family. I mean, anything of those mm -hmm. natures, as we know. Well, I mean, a person who was converted, let's say through a dream or a vision, who lives, for instance, in the middle of China, in the middle of Iran, or any country today that is actively still persecuting Christians, uh, literally this life might be a hell for you, even though you're trying to follow the gospel, even though you may be converted. Um, it's just one of those things where you're living in the middle of a group of people who have a hatred for truth. And once you say, I am a believer, your days are counted. But, again, God will not leave you in that hell. There's a time that will, it will pass. It, this too will pass. And so it's what gives us a hope that if we're doing what's good and right, we can find joy in that. Just like Peter, when they were in prison, praised God and worshiped God in prison. You know, we look at those uh, temporary tribulations and we say, well, how could they have had joy? But you can have joy and happiness in those things, even so, because you're doing what you know is right. And so when you die, you know that all of these physical tribulations vanish. And now you just get the joy. That's probably all we're going to cover today. It took us an hour just to cover chapter 12. And we can get into 13 in another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a lot to think about in it, too. Yeah, there is. <laughs> Don McIndoe has like how many pages just for chapter 13 part 1 I don't want to talk about it <laughs> he didn't get me prepared for like part 1 and part 2 because I was getting close to the end and I was like okay I'm starting to understand and he's like alright now that's verse 1 and I was like oh my that's just one <laughs> yeah <clears throat> but that really shows you how many hidden treasures there are if you were willing to dig deep there's some really good stuff in there. The Jordan Peterson theory, which it's actually a theory. Yeah. Making things more complex to have more understanding behind it. Well, that's why sometimes it's, it's nice to just be able to step back and look at it from as simple a view as we can, just taking the overview. Because once you have an overview, and of course this is my opinion also, once you have a, a good, strong foundation in history and a good, strong foundation in the history of the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, these things begin to make more sense. 
You know, when we haven't really had much study in history and we haven't really read much in the Old Testament, sometimes we read these things and we just sit scratching our head. What in the world does this mean? And so many people today, that's what they do. They come in to Revelations hoping to understand it without first establishing that foundation. You've really got to get into history, uh, especially, you know, when we're talking about this period of time, which in my opinion is from the time of Christ all the way up into, you know, the 4th and 5th century. And even as we get into 13, the 6th century, what we have in here is historic history. And if we study history, it makes sense. Yeah, if you don't to study me. history, you're going to think it's all in the future because you don't even know what the past is. Right. You're going to misunderstand everything. I guess everyone has their excuse of watching TV, but that's not a good excuse. <laughs> well, even if you don't, even if you just read... Uh, non or fiction novels and these other things when you start reading history and some of these other events man uh it's a different type of older english mm -hmm. so it's more challenging the scriptures in itself i mean revelations is a daunting task just to read i think a lot of people just scratch their head like you said because we don't use this type of word we don't describe dragons beasts women giving birth and travail and stars and then being expected to go through and, and try to have an understanding of that, it's just that whole other level of dedication and curiosity. Right. And it's very hard, especially in our day-to-day -day life today, uh, especially in America or first world countries, man, I mean, you start, you wake up, and then before you know it, you're already back in bed. Yep. If you don't take time, if you don't put it down, write it down somewhere, then I'm going to take an hour today, half an hour, 15 minutes, whatever the time that you can, write it out and do it on purpose. You're never going to understand it, even though you might want to, because mm -hmm. that time will just vanish. Yep. And I would say if a person really wants to prepare themselves to understand chapter 13 well, a good thing to do is begin studying around the 2nd to the 4th century, especially Constantine's period of time. Uh, both before a little bit him and a little bit after him because we're going to see this unfold here. Now, obviously, if a person, if their preferred way of studying is YouTube videos, <laughs> uh, I would definitely recommend if you're going to watch YouTube videos put out by churches, that you make sure you set aside time to watch YouTube videos only put out by historians. Yeah. Balance it. Because when we only look at it from the point of view of what some church believes, uh, we're off balance. Mm -hmm. If you look at it through the eyes of what the historians are telling us, now you're balancing out more, and you'll see the text come alive. Another podcast that really hits a lot of that area is, uh, it's called The History of Rome. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can go through there, and he'll talk about Constantine. He does it through the years from the very beginning, History of Rome that we know of, all the way up into the fall of right. Rome. Which is pretty cool. Actually, I don't know if he's gotten the fall yet. I haven't hit the end of the podcast, but mm -hmm. he does do a pretty good job of summarizing it without having to get through, you know, thousand book page uh, books and trying to figure it out yourself. He has quite a bit of that already, at least opinions on it through right. there, through other historians. It's a good where to, a good place to start. Absolutely. All right, I think we're done. Good deal. Good.